welcome to episode 74, 74 of our little podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is Perry Middlemas and I'm here as always with my very readable and reading friend, David Grigg. Hello, David. I'm very readable. Yeah, you're right. I'm very readable. You should, some people should read my stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it. they should. A they good should. thought. A good thought. Yes. 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 Um, so, how's how's the old reading been going? Uh, I'm feeling under a bit of pressure. I, I've actually, you won't believe this, but I've actually drawn up a, a timesheet using a time a timeline program, a timeline oh of what I've got to read when and by by which episode I've got to have it read and and, and which uh, you know it's, it's the yes. only way I can manage these things. Oh it's well, I'm, yeah, I'm cracking the whip a bit on you a, a little bit. So, um, oh, the Hugo's a, a, a bit of a pressure, but there's other things. Yeah, well, they are, but oh, I'm, I'm not going to put too much pressure on you regarding no, the Hugo's. No, we'll gradually work our way through those, and we'll talk about that near the end of this yeah. particular program. But we will get. Um, through that because it is a topical and it's it's actually good to read the nominees yeah it's, inter- it's good to see what's coming up and, and, yeah, and what people are doing these days in the yeah, field it is and you know it's you, you get an idea about what's happening in the field to a degree you get an idea of what some of the nominators prejudices might be yes um and you get the idea about what's what what people want to read because that's that's the thing that people are nominating. Um, well, that's one way of looking at it, David. That's probably the way to do it. Um, the more nominations you get, the better spread you get, and they're getting a large number of nominations uh, these days. I think more in the novel category, but we won't know for sure exactly. Um, uh, how many nominations there were for each of these individual uh, works until all of the voting and nomination figures come out after the awards are presented. Yep. And that won't be until, ooh, I think it's the first Saturday in September. So we've got, we've got about three and a half months to get through them. I've got a bit less than you because I'm, I'm making sure that I'm voting so that I've got to make sure I've got to read it all right before we get to the actual um, convention, uh, probably about a month out. So I'm thinking early August, maybe yep. end, of, end of July. I'm not entirely sure exactly when the voting comes through, but I've got a couple of months to get through it all. But, you know, I'm almost like you. I think I almost have to set myself up a reading schedule just to make sure, or at least I make sure that if I'm reading one of the uh, Hugo nominated novels every week or 10 days mm. that basically might get me through so i've got to yep. do two or three a month and that'll be fine and i'll be i'll be there so, that, sure. so that's good yep all right okay uh we're uh, four weeks since our last episode yes yeah, so it's a bit of a stretch it yeah a little bit of a stretch we, we both got caught up in doing other things and um uh but anyway we're back uh, and uh, we're going to be back talking about crime, but there's a few bits of news that I'd like to uh, cover before we get through to the actual main part of the podcast episode. Yep. Uh, first of these is uh, a couple of the major awards uh, in and around the genre fields, science fiction, fantasy and crime. First one is the 2022 Locus Awards, which are based around Locus Magazine, which styles itself as the newsletter of the science fiction and fantasy genres and the associated stuff. So young adult, 
that has that sort of uh, genre aspect and horror as mm. well. Yep. Um, now these, there's a lot of these awards, so I'm absolutely not going through them all. Um, but we'll put a link onto the show notes so people can go and have a look at it. For example, they do locusts do th- things very differently from the way that the Hugos and Nebulas do. The Hugos and Nebulas basically lump all of their novels all into the one category. Locus has a award for best SF novel, best fantasy novel, best horror, best young adult, and best first novel. That's the sort of contentious piece um, because there's one coming up, which I'll mention just in a minute, that you can only be in one of these categories. You can't be in two. So you can't be best first novel and best SF or best fantasy novel. You're which one which or is double. a bit odd, really, isn't it? It is. It yeah. is. I, I, I can see that you can be the best overall novel as well as the best first novel. True. But the, this is the locus rules, and that's what yeah. we have to play by. As long as you know what's happening... That's the major thing. So I went through the Locus Awards, and as I said, there's a there's a, a lot of them, and they have uh, a top 10 in each category, so there's a fair bit there. And I went looking for the Australians on the list. They normally say one or two, but this time we actually have you know, five, which is pretty good. That's very good. So we've got Best First Novel, and this is the one that I was going to get to, She Who Became the Sun by Shelley Parker-Chan. That has received, um, uh, well, it's on the ballot for the Hugo novel, but here it's best first novel. There we go. That's the way that goes. Best anthology this year, uh, the Australian entry is the year's best science fiction volume two. Jonathan Strawn, he's a uh, science fiction um, editor and anthologist um, living in Perth. Best artist, Melbourne's own Sean Tan which is always good to see. And two very interesting um, entries on the best non-fiction shortlist. Dangerous Visions and New Worlds, Radical Science Fiction 1950 to 1985, edited by Andrew Nettie and Ian McIntyre. And You Are Not Your Writing and Other Sage Advice by Angela Slatter. Both both of those books are represented by people living in Melbourne, which is... um, Always one, always a good one for us, David. Sure. Yep. We always like to bring that up. Now, these um, award winners will be announced uh, at a ceremony um, to be held at the end of July this year. So they will be out before the uh, before the Hugos are announced. In the field of crime, and we will be talking about crime books in this particular episode, so this is uh, fairly germane to that discussion, the 2022 Dagger Award shortlists have been announced. Now, these are given out by the Crime Writers Association of the United Kingdom, uh, and the winners will be announced at a ceremony on June 29th. Now, I had a bit of a quick run through and couldn't see any Australians here. Um, just to give you an idea of what sort of awards and categories they uh, represent, uh, they give out a gold dagger, which is the award for the best crime novel by any author of any nationality. And the only one that I have read there was Razorblade Tears, which by S.A. Crosby, uh, Cosby, uh, which I spoke about at our last in our last um, crime fiction uh, episode, and I enjoyed that immensely. They also give out the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger 
Award, which is um, thrillers set in any period include, but are not limited to, spy fiction, psychological thrillers and action-adventure stories. They do the John Creasy New Blood Dagger, which is for a first-time author of any nationality, crime fiction in translation, uh, a dagger for non-fiction, one for historical fiction, one for short stories, one for the publishers, one for a debut, and they do a dagger in the library. Oh, good heavens. Which is the last one of this one, uh, which is a prize for a body of work by an established crime writer who has long been popular with borrowers from libraries. Yeah, oh, okay, interesting. And who has supported libraries and their users, which I think is a pretty good little um, yeah, award to give out. Yeah. That's an interesting one. So, uh, as I said, they'll be given out at the end of uh, June, I think I said. Yep, yep. that's it. Uh, they're one of the most prestigious crime fiction awards. Uh, going around, uh, as I said, given out by the Crime Writers of Association of the United Kingdom. It's probably our their equivalent of our Ned Kelly Awards to, to that degree. And the last piece of news that I have is a uh, little bit sad news in that um, we've lost one of the major writers in the field, uh, Patricia McKillop, born in 1948 and died um, a couple of weeks back. Patricia McKillop uh, won the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel in 1984, Harpist in the Wind, uh, which also received a Hugo nomination. She was nominated for uh, twice, I think, for a Nebula um, for the Best Novel, and she won the World Fantasy Award twice in 1975 for Forgotten Beasts of Eld. Excellent book, I've read that, that's good. And in 2002 for Ombria in Shadow, haven't read that. She also received uh, the World Fantasy Award for, for the Lifetime Achievement in 2008. Okay. Uh, which is a pretty big thing to pick up. And her last novel was Kingfisher, which was published in 2016. Also a novel which I really enjoyed. So, uh, 74 years old. Uh it's a pity that she's gone. She, um, I think she still had a lot of good work uh, left that she could do. As I said, Kingfisher in 2016 uh, was an excellent book, and I, I did enjoy that. It was, um, uh, It's one of those ones where, um, if I recall correctly, where people are sort of reimagining fairy tales, and there seems to be a fair bit of that um, happening. Uh, there's at least one of them on the Hugo's short fiction ballot, which we shall talk about next episode. Uh, but unfortunately, she's no longer with us. But that's my news for this episode, David. Yep. I, I have nothing uh, in that regard I, this time around. All right. Okay. So well, let's just move on to our uh, major area of discussion, which is that other genre that we really like to read, namely um Crime, but here, of course, here, of course, we do like to include sort of uh, hardcore crime, hard case crime, thrillers, spy novels, cozies, any of that sort of stuff that you want to um, uh, cover that fits within the crime and mystery genre. So that's the other one that we like to deal with, and that's what we're talking about today. So, David, over to you for the first one. Indeed, thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to be talking about uh, Those Who Perish by Emma Visick. How, how do you pronounce her last name? I, it's spelt Viskick, but but I presume it's more like Visick. I would have thought so. I am yeah. not entirely sure, do you think? Yeah, oh, well, never mind. I'm sure someone could tell us. All right, so Those Who Perish. Um, now, this is the fourth, and apparently it's the final book in her series of crime novels feeling Caleb Zellick 
who's a deaf or almost deaf private investigator. I've enjoyed the series quite a lot so far, and I've really been impressed by how the author deals with her protagonist's deafness and how he struggles to overcome this in carrying out his investigations. Um, She also deals very knowledgeably with the deaf community and the use of sign language. She's not deaf herself, but she apparently has good good deaf friends and has uh, very good contacts with the, the deaf community. Uh, okay, so let's look at Caleb Zellick. In several ways, he's an annoying character. He keeps sort of getting involved in matters which he really ought to leave alone. I actually don't much like books generally where you're all the time saying in your head to the character, you idiot, don't do that. And there's a bit of that in, in this particular book, I'm afraid. Now, in the past, this characteristic of jumping in where he shouldn't has put those who are close to him, particularly his Koori wife, Cat, in great danger. And this impulsiveness and failure to think through the consequences has led Cat several times to break off with him. But as this novel opens, though, the two are reconciled again, and Cat is in the late stages of pregnancy. But based on his behaviour in the previous books of the series, you feel sure, however, that Caleb will find a way to stuff this up. And of course he does. Anyway, that's a, that's a pretty good setup for an interesting story. Unfortunately, I found this particular book pretty disappointing. It was unsatisfying and annoying on several accounts. There are quite a number of plot threads which just don't seem to hold up when you look back at them and try to make sense of them. Like, as, as you're reading a book or any book like this, you sort of accept things as they go by. But later you might think back and say to yourself, hang on a minute, how did that go on? How, how, how could that be? And there's quite a bit of that here, I'm afraid, for me anyway. So, for example, at the start of the novel, I'm not giving anything away because it's right at the start of the novel, um, we have Caleb racing back to his hometown, Resurrection Bay, from Melbourne, uh, which is a three-hour drive. And he's racing to get there on the basis of an anonymous text message which has has been been sent uh, telling him that his brother Anton will be in danger in a specific place on the foreshore at a particular time early in the morning. Uh, three and a bit hours after the message is sent. So when Caleb finally gets there, sure enough, there's a sniper taking pot shots and Anton is hiding in some bushes. And there's a whole little thing about what happens then. But exactly why this is happening and who sent this text message, why they sent it, and how they knew about this danger almost four hours before it occurs, is to my mind never satisfactorily explained. Maybe I missed something and I just glossed over it, but it, it, it just didn't it didn't really gel for me. I couldn't work out how that happened. So anyway, after this shooting incident, um, Anton disappears. Now, and later, Caleb discovers that his brother, who's a drug addict who's gone missing for six months before this, is now living at a rehab, rehabilitation centre on a nearby island. Caleb takes the ferry across to track him down and work out what's going on. And there's a complicated plot in which Caleb seems to be floundering around, getting himself into more and more danger, investigating things on the island which seem suspicious to him, and making enemies along the way. And sure enough, soon he's putting his wife Cat in danger again, not to mention his unborn child, and she's rightly pissed off by this. However, there are indeed a number of mysteries to do with the rehabilitation centre of the island and its inhabitants. Something dodgy is definitely going on. I don't want to give away the resolution of the book, but the biggest disappointment to me when I got to the end was the way that what's going on in the island is explained. It's yet another one of those points where a short while after finishing the book, you go, hang on. 
So the scheme involves a dodgy, highly secret activity. So secret that people are being blackmailed or killed to keep it secret. This is part of what the sniper was doing at the start of the book. But later on, you say to yourself, hang on, how exactly are these people making any money from this scheme? It doesn't make any sense. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I found the book as a whole disappointing, which is a pity for, for, the, way, for a way the, for the series to conclude, I thought. So, anyway, that was just, that was just my take on it. I have a feeling from what you said, David, that we may start getting a bit of a theme here. So um, bear with me and we'll talk about that when we get near the end. Oh, okay. Interesting. All right. So my first book that I'm going to be covering is um, Better Off Dead by Lee and Andrew Child from 2021. Uh, this is the 26th in the Jack Reacher series of novels and the second to be written by the Child Brothers. I put child in inverted commas here, of course, because um, Lee Child, well, while he's actually changed his name, I believe, to um, to become Lee Child, that wasn't his original birth name. And uh, Andrew, who is actually Lee Child's brother, Child is not his original birth name either. Uh, and so the two of them are using the same um, surname for their pseudonym here. Now... Lee Child wrote the first 24 uh, books in this particular series, and a couple of years ago he had um, he was putting about putting out one a year, and they were selling gangbusters all around, all over the place. And so you can understand that the publishers, you know, don't want to kill the goose that lays the golden egg every year. They just want to basically keep on rolling it out, yet another one, yet another one every every year. But Lee Child was starting to get a little bit sick of it, as you can understand, after about 24, and either wanted to branch out or do something else, or just basically give it up, because he didn't really need the money by this stage, because he'd earned quite a lot from all the writing, but I think he was just sick of it. Turns out that his younger brother, Andrew, had also been writing uh, novels and had written a few uh, in a sort of similar sort of genre, sort of crime thriller sort of style, and... Um, the two of them got together and decided that, yep, Andrew could take over. Now, Andrew is about 15 years younger than Lee, uh, and there's been a few interviews uh, with the two of them recently, and Lee has basically said he barely knew the guy as youngster because he left when he was about 18 or 19, and so Andrew was only three or four. And so through the whole of his period uh, during his teenage years, the two of them saw each other occasionally, but not really very much. But... When they got to adulthood and started to um, uh, started to talk to each other, Lee realised that Andrew was pretty much on the same wavelength, and so this worked out really well, and the publishers were very happy. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I don't think it's worked out very well as a writing team. Either that, or the whole Jack Reacher concept has just had its time. Now... For those that aren't familiar with the Jack Reacher novels, he's basically a modern knight errant. He just turns up, does his business, does what he has to do, cleans up all the the bad guys in town and leaves. So he's basically um, carries no clothing. Uh, All the clothing uh, that he needs, he buys and wears it for two or three days, then chucks it out and buys something new. So he buys all base-level stuff. Uh, he only carries a passport, 
passport, some money and a toothbrush. And that's basically all he carries with him. And he's an ex-Marine uh, police officer. So he was an art military police. Uh, and he is basically six foot six. He probably weighs about 120 kilos, 125 kilos. Uh, classic brick outhouse, as they say. Huge guy. And uh, while he's rather intelligent, he does like to solve things um, in a rather brutal manner um, where that needs to be done. And that's what, he's, what he basically does here. So anyway, in this particular novel, well, this is the same that he does every single novel. It's just a different thing that he comes across. Here... Um, He's just walking down a road out in the Midwest or down in Texas somewhere. You never really know 100%, but who cares? I mean, uh, all these towns are pretty much the same. He's, near, he's not... I, I get the idea here, well, we will find out here, that he's near the Texas, uh, the, the US-Mexican border in Texas. So anyway, he's walking down this road and he comes across what he thinks is a, is a wrecked car on the side of the road. So he goes over to investigate only for the woman behind the count or behind the wheel to pull a gun on him. And he realizes this is a bit of a setup and he's sort of, a, okay, what's going on here? And she starts asking him questions like, where's Michael? Who's Michael? I don't know anybody by the name of. Yes, you do. Where, where, where are your compatriots? Where are they? Uh, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about this. He says, well, what are you doing here? I'm just walking down the road and saw you here and I came over to have a bit of a look see what was wrong and he realizes as he walks around that the car's not been wrecked there's only one tree in this desert somewhere and the car was sitting about a centimeter or two away from from this particular car from the tree so it looks from behind and elsewhere like she's gone off the road and plowed into this particular tree she then works out he's got nothing to do with the people that she's expecting to turn up and so she sort of says, look, you have to go hide somewhere. These guys are going to turn up in a minute. And the guys, yes, they do turn up. She kills one of them. And then they basically get a bit of information out of the other one before he beats an untimely demise as well. Uh, you always got to remember here that there's always going to be a very large body count. Probably not quite as much as in the John Wick movies, but up there, there's a fair bit. And as it works out, she basically, well, Richard finds out, starts talking to her and finds out that she is looking for this guy, Michael, who happens to be her twin brother. And the brother appears to be missing, she's, and she's trying to track him down. Sounds like she has received a message from him somehow, and she's trying to track him down into this particular area. It also appears that the brother's been working as a bomb maker for a drug smuggler near the US-Mexican border. And so she's trying to work out whether he's actually involved fully as a bomb maker, whether he's involved in the drug smuggling or whether he's been coerced and blackmailed into it and tried to get out. So Richard basically just gets involved. Uh, he can go into a lot of detail about the, the story, but the whole idea about these particular novels is you start them and it just goes as a roller coaster. It just does not stop. The action probably takes place over two, three days and it's just flat out and frenetic. As I said, Lots of dead bodies normally, and most of the most of the novels uh, in this particular series are, are told in the third person. But this one actually is one of the few that's told in the first person, and it's generally in line with what you're going to expect from all the rest of the particular books. 
but the spark seems to be going out of these. There seems to be just, I don't know, just there just doesn't seem to be the drive and the impetus all the way right through. And the story is also told in a really sort of stuttery sentence structure mm-hmm. so that you get, you can always pick it up. And it's like, instead of having bits of the sentences that would be a clause, comma, a clause, comma, it's clause, full stop, clause, full stop, clause, full stop, no. clause, full stop. And you get, oh. And after a while, it starts to intrude and you start thinking, Okay, well, fine, fair enough. I understand what he's attempting to do here, but it's like beating the reader over the head with a brick. Mm. And you start getting to the point where it intrudes on the flow of the story. So, as I said, as I've sort of alluded to, I've read all 26 in this particular series. And I've, I know that's a lot, but you read them over. T- it is a lot. <laughs> well, you read them over 20 years. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, just yeah. read them one every year. They yeah, come out for enough. Christmas. I buy it, my wife reads them, I read them, but I'm starting to get a little bit sick of this particular series now, and I'm starting to get to the point where I'm thinking, no, I'll just get the same stuff all the time. Now, this book is really going to be very, very popular. I'm not going to put anybody off reading the Jack Reacher, this Jack Reacher novel if they have a feeling that this is what they want to read, and that's fine. Go out and read it. But I'm not terribly sure I'm going to be sticking with the series Terribly much longer, to be perfectly frank. I gave this one three out of five, and my numbers on these are just dropping. You know, there was like 3.4, 3.2. I'll be well into the twos, low twos by the time the next one comes around, I think. I've just, it's just, it's just not working for me at all. Yeah. Now, now, how much of that do you think is the fact that you have read all 26 and you've just had too much of it? I mean, if someone were coming to this book for, as, for the first time they'd ever read any Jack Reacher, do you think that they would think it was pretty good or not? I think they would. I think they would think it was pretty good if you like this sort of style of stuff where it is that, you know, good guy coming in and beating the Jesus out of the bad guys, beating them all up all over the place. Yes, you would probably think that it is, but I still don't believe that it is one of the best of the series. I think probably around five or six through to about the mid-teens were probably about the best. Mm-hmm. And some of them after that started to get a little bit flaky. Then they come good again and they get a little bit flaky. But it, it really did feel as though the last couple uh, that um, Lee Child wrote on his own, there was something missing and it was starting to fade off. You could, you, you, almost, you couldn't read the author's enthusiasm in the book anymore. That had, start, that had started to go. And now I believe that this is starting to show. If you were to read this one fresh, first off, first time, probably really enjoy it. Probably think, these are really great. And then go back to the beginning and read them through. Mm. Probably think it's all right. And a lot of people will be doing that. Because, of course, there's been a new Jack Reacher television series that's come out based on the very first book, um, uh, Killing the, Floor, yeah. Killing Floor, yeah. and it was actually a very good adaptation of that particular book, and it was done very well. There was they had uh, they picked a a good uh, actor in the role. He's not quite six foot six, but he's about six four six five, and he's a big guy, and he also looks the part. Probably a tad young, but he looks the part, and at least he's got the point where. And they've also upgraded it to uh, modern times because it was just going to be too difficult to be able to do everything right back in the 1980s and then through into the 1990s, pre-internet, pre-mobile phones, all that sort of stuff. People go, well, looks contemporary. What's without, what's, why is there no 
was there no mobile phones and all that sort of stuff. So anyway, what they did was instead of him being have, having been in um, the, the first of the Gulf Wars in the early 90s, they moved him through and he's been to um, uh, Afghanistan later on. And so they've, they've upgraded it all and brought it, brought it up to date. And I didn't have a problem with that. It is um, an adaptation of a novel and my view... Every and I said this about Dune um, as well, uh, the the film film adaptation of Dune. Every adaptation of a particular novel is an adaptation. It is not a true representation of what you read in the novel. Mm. It is a, it is based on, but not the same thing. And yeah. you have to be lenient and allow the filmmaker, the directors, the screenwriters, the actors, and the production company, and everybody else to make their own version of that particular story. Now, if they stick to the basic aim and basic thought and theme of the original piece of work, well, then I I think it's fine. Mm. If you're going to completely chuck out all of the good stuff and bring in a whole lot of stuff which, frankly, just doesn't work, well, then, yeah, you can really get stuck into it and criticise it. But the Rachel TV series that came out recently was, I thought... A pretty good adaptation. It's very interesting that um, one of the major things uh, that when when it's when it's told in the third person, when all, when the novels are told in the third person, the one small sentence that you get more often than anything else is "Reacher said nothing," <laughs> which is always good because it means he's sort of this taciturn, solid guy. He's got he's got nothing to say. He's not, he's not going to say anything. In this particular book, he actually said. I didn't answer. I said nothing. So it's good that they've got that same sort of thing there. I thought, oh, yeah, that was all right. They go, oh, a, a, tick tick, that, yeah. a, a tick for that. Yeah. And in the TV series, I saw the uh, trailer first and I thought, oh, God, he talks too much. This isn't going to be any good. But in the TV series, when it first starts, he says nothing for the six, first six minutes and he's on screen the whole time. And so... That first six minutes, he does not utter a word. And I thought, you yep, got it right. Mm. They've got it right. They've mm. figured out what the major things are about Reacher and who he is. And so, from that perspective, I think a lot of people are going to read that and they're going to come to this and they're probably going to say, oh, yeah, this is still pretty good. It's still a good novel based on that particular character. But for those of us that have been there for the whole of the journey, I'm starting to get the point where I'm saying, mm. No, it's getting a bit tired. Mm. So yeah, it's, no, fair enough. it's a bit disappointing. Mm. So as I said, this might be a theme with what you said mm, um, uh, with the, the Caleb Zellick. Maybe four novels for her was one too far. Mm. It could be, yeah. yeah. It'll be interesting be. to see what she does next, I think. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah it will be. I mean, if she's moving away from this, hopefully she's going to make um, – she's really going to take her time to set up the next series or if it's a standalone that she takes a bit of time to set it up properly and then really puts everything into it because she's a good writer and it would be really good to be able to see that she can produce something up to the standard of the first, of the of those first novels. Sure. It would be good. Absolutely, yeah. All right, I'm going to roll on to talking about The Murder Rule by Dervla McTiernan. A book that I have also just finished. Ah, oh. So this this is a complete change of pace, or at least venue, um, by Dervla McTiernan, who's an Irish writer who is now an Australian resident. Um, her previous three novels were all set in Galway, Ireland, and they feature her detective Cormac Riley. 
This new novel, however, is set in the United States, and the protagonist is a young woman by the name of Hannah Rokeby. So, uh, the very opening of the book is a series of emails between Hannah and a professor, Robert Parker. I'm not sure how you pronounce it. I'm going to say Parker. P-A-R-E-K-H. I'm just going to say Parker. Uh, Professor Robert Parker, who runs the Innocence Project, which is a group of lawyers and volunteer law students who seek out cases where they believe that innocent people are being convicted of serious crimes, and then they do what they can to overturn those convictions. Now, Hannah's clearly desperate to join the Innocent Project. Uh, She's told, this is still in the emails, she's told that it's too late to apply to volunteer. And then she clumsily attempts to blackmail Parker, who then agrees to see her. Uh, Not because the blackmail succeeds, uh, or was likely to succeed, but because he's intrigued by her out-of-the-box sort of approach. I thought that was very dubious, to be honest. You know, the competition among students to join this project is extremely high, Entries already closed, but he lets in someone who's proved herself to act unethically. Mm, yeah, maybe. Anyway, nevertheless, as part of the story, he, he lets her join, and that's the very start of the book. However, we soon learn that Hannah is joining the project with an ulterior motive, which is related to the experience, experiences of her mother, Laura, who is now a very needy alcoholic. And we progressively get to read excerpts from Laura's diary, which was written before Hannah's birth. Hannah's apparently found this diary by accident, and she's fired up about what occurred to her mother. Now, the Innocence Project is trying to free a man called Michael Dandridge, who's been in jail for 11 years after being convicted of the murder and rape of a young mother. Professor Parker and the other volunteers seem convinced of Dandridge's innocence because of the very dubious evidence which was used against him. However, we quickly begin to understand that Hannah is there not to help, but to sabotage the efforts of the Innocence Project to free Dandridge because of the allegations that Laura makes against Dandridge in her diary. Now, Hannah is quite ruthless in her approach and she secretly carries out a series of unethical actions, including, in one case, a very cruel action against one of the other volunteers. So the, the interest in the novel is really, is really Laura's story as it gradually is revealed through excerpts from her diary and in the success or failure of Hannah's sabotage. I found it quite an engaging read, but in the end there were a number of things which really didn't work for me. I don't want to give too much away of the plot, but so I won't reveal how it turns out, but I don't think I'm giving too much away to say that there's eventually a dramatic courtroom scene, which I found completely unbelievable. I'm certainly not an expert on American legal practice, but as far as I can tell, the judge hearing the case allows Hannah an absurd amount of latitude and allows evidence to be tabled, which I'm pretty sure would be instantly rejected in a real court of law. And the other thing I found hard to take was that at the end of the book, Hannah's unethical and quite cruel actions have been rather glossed over by the other characters, and she doesn't really suffer any consequences for them, though they've pretty much destroyed the life of one of her fellow workers, who doesn't seem to get any say in any of that. So, yeah, I I found it disappointing. So, you've read it, Perry. What, did, what, did, what was your take on it? I really struggle to get engaged with this book at all, to be perfectly frank. Um, it's just, it's a very slow burn early on. It takes a long time before you start figuring out, oh, okay, this character is involved. This is the character here. This is the character over there. Yep. All right, okay, so that's fine. You get all that worked out. And then it just goes on and on and on. And it just seems to take 
Well, the novel's about 290 pages, and I think probably 200 would have been about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, but um, I, so I think there's just a lot of wordage that just doesn't doesn't really help things terribly much. You get no idea of what the whole thing is about for some time um, until, oh, okay, then you finally figured out that, okay, there has been something that's happened in the past that um, has caused all this to, to go on. Oh, all right, great, okay. And then it just drags again. And then, as you say, it gets to the very end and it gets to the court case at the end. And I, th- I just thought it was completely rushed. Mm. I thought that, you know, you get to the court case like 30, 40 pages from the end and it's over in 20 pages. It's just done. It's almost yeah. like a short story done. And you sort of think, what? Yeah. What? What? Is- no. It's, it's too easy, yeah. isn't it? Too, it I mean, is it's too just, easy. It's and just, it just, oh, oh, okay, fine. Oh, all, and, we'll solve that case then. And as you say, I mean, Hannah basically says, oh, yes, I've got this evidence um, uh, illegally. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That that wouldn't be accepted, sure. What? Um, And I just sort of thought, I don't know. Um, There's there's an afterword where Dervin McTiernan said this is a novel that she's wanted to write for a very long time. Uh, I don't know. It's just not up to the level of the Cormac Riley um, Mm. um, stories, unfortunately. I just think that um, uh, I don't know. I don't know whether it's the the change of scenery, as you say, because she's moved everything to the United States, and maybe it would have been. I wonder why she did that. I really well, I, I think I think it's, it's understandable. If, if this this if this innocence project is is the key to it, to the story, then it's hard to imagine something similar in other countries. I think don't they have them in other countries? Yeah, I don't know. Don't they have? Um, uh, yeah, I don't. I don't know. Maybe um, maybe it was to try to get into the American market. Could be, um, yeah. Could we saw be. Candace Fox do this mm. uh, after writing a number of um, uh, very interesting Australian novels and then jumped to um, an American one, which I know you enjoyed, but I didn't enjoy as much. Well, she's written a and couple I, of, of, of yeah, uh, she, one set in the United States now. Yeah, she yeah, she has done so yeah. with. Uh, and we, you like the chase? The, 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 she also. Oh wrote yeah, the chase, it was. Yeah, sure. the chase was okay. You know, parts of it, but I did, don't think I liked it as much as you did. No, um, okay. But um, uh, I just wonder. I just wonder whether she's looking for a market here. Mm. I'm not sure. I mean, you could. I, I believe that um, uh, from what I've heard that uh, Col- the act- Irish actor Colin Farrell has um, bought the rights to the original. Her original series okay. about with uh, Cormac Riley and is working on a on a film adaptation. Uh, I think that'll be better if they were television adaptations. Yeah, to be yeah. perfectly frank, just to give it a little bit yeah. more time. Yeah. But this one, this one really le- read to me. And what? Well, maybe I don't know whether it's because I I heard that, and I heard maybe I heard that this one had already been picked up by somebody or other. But it, this particular novel read to me like it was. Uh, a TV adaptation bait, almost. I'm writing this so that you've got mm. this long time to sort of build up these characters so that you've got, um, uh, you know, like the main character is duplicitous um, and it's got a hidden agenda, uh, which a lot of a lot of the thriller TV series really seem to like. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I'm not saying she was writing it to a recipe, but I'm just wondering whether she had a sort of an eye on that. 
um, as uh, a way to move herself ahead. If so, that's fine. I don't have a problem with it, other than the fact that I think it's detracted from the particular novel itself. I don't think, as you say, that she handled the um, the final outcomes of the court case terribly well. And I mean, I was I was sort of skimming some some sections, David, because I was thinking, oh God. Do I have to go into this house again and go wandering around this house and be shown where all this stuff is in this house? Oh, God. And so um, just basically got the point where I, I struggled all the way through I, I, to read this. So I only gave it 3.2 out of 5. Um, more than likely my fault. I have uh, no, no qualms about basically saying that that, were, that may well be the case. But unfortunately... No, it didn't, no, didn't really work all that well no, for me. Yeah, but let's say we, we're both disappointed with it, but I, I at least found it reasonably easy to read, but never mind. And I got through yeah. it. Yeah, anyway. anyway. All right, never mind. Different strengths. All right, moving on. Mine, next one, uh, is a book called Duck Season Death from 20, 2014, written by an Australian author, June Wright. Now, June Wright's best known for her first novel, Murder in the Telephone Exchange, which was published in 1948. Now, this was uh, followed by another five novels in the period up to 1966. There was, they were published, this is. There were two other novels that people are aware of that she wrote. One that she submitted, uh, the publisher's reading groups basically said, nah, didn't like it. And unfortunately, that manuscript has gone missing. Mm. And there was this one, uh, Duck Season Death, which again was rejected by the publisher's readers but languished in her um, uh, the bottom drawer of her uh, desk, and it was only published after uh, after she died. So it was written. This book was written sometime in the nineteen sixties, and not published until twenty fourteen. So it's a it's a bit of a bit of a strange thing. So you have to read this as if it was written in the nineteen sixties and was looking back, sure. even probably a little bit further to that. Um, in this particular novel. A character, Athel Sefton, is the publisher in an Australian literary magazine called Culture and Critic. Now, he's gone with his nephew up to a hotel called the Duck and Dog Inn, which is um, outside a northern um, Victorian town of uh, Dunbaven, fictitious. And they're up there for the duck hunting season. So they've gone up for the duck hunting season and they've gone out stupidly, a day before when they're not supposed to, to get a couple of ducks early when he's fatally shot. Now, the nephew is convinced that his uncle's death was an act of murder, that he was shot deliberately. But he can't seem to get anybody... Well, by the time he gets back to the hotel, all, all this group of people that have turned up that are going to be there for the duck hunting season, at least for the start of it, have all shown up. And he tries to convince them all that uh, basically, his uncle's been shot. Well, uh, murdered. They're happy to admit that he's been shot, but they don't want to go with the idea that he's been murdered. No, 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 that can't happen. It was just, just, just a mistake. And it just seems to go on and on that everybody, nobody seems to believe this this guy that um, uh, you know that his uncle, his uncle's been murdered. Um, and so, the nephew decides to set out and solve the problem on his own. And so as he starts talking to people about his uncle, of course, just about everybody in the hotel had some connection with Sefton. Uh, so this is a, turns into basically one of these classic 
I think they're basically called country house murders, even though they may not necessarily be set in a country house. But it's that whole idea of a whole lot of people go off uh, to, say, northern England to go quail shooting or pigeon shooting or grouse shooting or whatever, and somebody dies and then everybody's in the house and not allowed to leave until they solve it. So exactly the same as Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile. So you've got a whole group of people in an enclosed area where there's a detective who is looking into the case trying to solve it all. And so the nephew's basically looking into this, and then suddenly out of the blue, a police detective turns up. He says, oh, okay, this is a bit, bit odd. Now, he's originally arrived to interview Sefton about the death of his late wife, who the police detective seems to think has been poisoned. Um, but when he finds out that the uh, 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 Ethel Sefton uh, is dead, he just seems to sort of go, almost like a pointer dog, just goes, oh, oh no, well, you'll do. You're, you're the next person in line that is talking to the nephew, so you're the one that did it. And so the, the police, did, and I think, what? A bit odd, a bit odd. Anyway, so in the end, it works out that as you keep on going around and the nephew keeps talking to people and he starts finding a few clues here and there, then it starts to work out that um, uh, everybody had a connection and everybody's a possible suspect. Uh, and so the nephew and the detective are both trying to solve it. The detective's trying to wait for the nephew to make a mistake so that he'll prove that he killed not only the, the, the Sefton's late, late wife, but also Sefton himself for some dubious reason. While the real killer is basically prancing around, is probably the last person that you thought it would possibly be. Look, it's amusing, uh, it's enjoyable, it's not really of the highest order. Um, I've heard very good things about uh, June Wright's other other novels. Uh, a lot of people are based... Well, the, the, the person that actually wrote the introduction to this late posthumous publication has sort of come out and sort of said, well, you know, this was a very... Um, uh, it was sort of a critique of the country house murder uh, genre, well, not really. No, I didn't. I didn't really see that. I just saw it was just another one uh, in the um, in in that sort of style. Uh, look, it's amusing, uh, lightweight, uh, short, uh, but you won't remember it for very long. And so, again, I only gave it a three point two out of five. But yeah, um, okay. uh, of more historical interest than anything else, I think, David. This yeah. One. All right. Well, I'm going to move on to my last one, which is a bit different from the others we've been talking about, because it's a genre-crossing novel, as you'll discover. So this is The City and the City by China Mieville. I presume that's how you pronounce his name. Yeah, yeah yes. Yeah. Uh, so The City and the City opens as though it were a simple procedural crime novel. It's written from the first-person point of view of police inspector Theodore Borlu of the extreme crime squad in the city of Bezel. He's at the crime scene in a piece of waste ground where a young woman's body has been discovered covered up by an old mattress. She's been struck on the head by some heavy object and then stabbed. There's nothing on the body to identify her and it's clear that she was killed somewhere else and brought here to hide. So, so, so far it just seems like the start of a pretty solid crime novel. But we're slowly smoothly introduced to the fact that there's something very strange about this city. In fact, there are two cities, Bezel and Ulquama, strangely intersecting or intermingling with each other at many points. 
These are, in fact, the capitals of two independent countries, speaking different languages and having different cultures and cuisines. Yeah, they're not merely next to each other, but intertwined. However, the inhabitants of each city have been trained from childhood not to pay any conscious attention to those who live in the other city or to the buildings and streets which lie in that other place, even if those buildings are right next door to each other. This filtered view isn't merely a mechanical following of rules, but it's become, has become deeply inherent to the subconscious of the inhabitants of both cities. They may know intellectually that the other people and buildings are there, but they do not consciously give them any attention. In fact, to notice or interact with the other city's places or its people is to be in breach. And we eventually learn that there's a mysterious and very powerful entity called Breach, with a capital B, which enforces this strange system. None of this, by the way, is happening on some other planet or at a different time. We're made aware early on that Bezel and Ulquoma are set somewhere in our own contemporary world. Their citizens visit other countries like Turkey and England, and the Americans and the Canadians are involved in trading with the two cities and their embassies and so on. But in a way that's all background, the main thrust of the book is the solution of the crime, which is why I've listed here as a crime novel. So it's the, the, it, working out the solution, the, the unravelling of what's happened to this young woman and why. If it weren't for this fantastic background, you'd simply say that this is a top-notch procedural crime novel with interesting, well-depicted characters and, and an engaging plot. Inspector Borloo eventually discovers that while the body was found in his own city of Bezel, the murder actually occurs occurred in Ulquoma. So eventually his superiors send him to Ulquoma to cooperate with the police there to try and solve the murder. But although the two cities are intermingled in this strange way with each other, this is like travelling to a foreign country. You need visas and agreements and all sorts of things. And the local police there treat Borloo at first with a degree of hostility and contempt. But eventually he does settle into a working relationship with a senior detective in the Ulquoma police force. I thought that the working out of the solution of the crime is done very solidly. We get a good insight into the character and motivations of the victim and why she was killed. And what happened to her is by no means incidental to this strange intermingling of Bezel and Ulquoma, but it's actually driven by her obsessive research into the idea that there is a third city secretly existing between the two. When we find out the murderer's identity and their reasons for killing the young woman, they do make perfect sense in this uh, with this background. But all along we have this strange scenario of the two cities, which I, I just found absolutely fascinating. The, I admit that there are several things about it which are never fully explained, such as who founded the cities and what technology they might have had, uh, because uh, there's on-site archaeology going on, which is revealing some puzzling, puzzlingly advanced objects beneath the cities how the cities split up, or where they always split, who exactly controls the breach entity, and where does its advanced technology come from. So they're all left pretty much hanging, but, but I, I actually didn't mind that. I, they were, to me, interesting mysteries that to think about, which I, I for one was happy for the author to leave unresolved. So this is certainly the best fusion of the crime and science fiction genres that I've read. In fact, I think this is one of the best books I've read this year. I really, really liked it a lot. So, and I know you've read this, Perry. What, what's your feelings about it? I would agree with everything that you had to say. I won the 2010 um, Hugo Award for Best Novel 
which was presented here in, in Melbourne, uh, shared the award with uh, Paolo Bacigalupi's um, novel The Wind-Up Girl, uh, a, another excellent novel, but The City and the City, the longer you get away from it and you think, I must get back and reread that again. Mm, I'd like to reread it. Actually. It's just it, it's got such an intriguing and innovative base to the novel and the world in which it is, and you think, how can this possibly possibly work? Mm. But Mieva was such a good writer that he's able to bring bring it off, and you don't ever get the feeling that. Although there might be some, as you said, some little things that sort of scratch away around the, the surface and you think, oh, there's a little bit of an itch there that I can't quite get to. The, the world that he set up is just so intriguing and so interesting that it just carries you through. And it sounds like it might be a very difficult novel to read, but I don't recall it oh, being no, it was very that difficult at all. Yeah. It's a, as you say, it's a, good, it's a good crime mystery and it is based around the basic theme of the novel. It's not as if, oh, look, I've set up this wonderful uh, city where there's two cities sitting on top of each other, basically, um, um, interacting in the same space. But the crime's got nothing to do with that particular setup. No, 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 this has got everything, everything with yeah, that yeah. particular setup. And that's what makes this such a lovely rounded package. Mm. You You can't separate the crime from... The space in which it in which it occurs, and for because of that, it is one of the great. It's one of the great twenty first century science fiction novels, in my view, and it's also a really good crime. A novel. really good crime novel. That's a what really makes really it so good. Crime novel, yeah. and so based, you know, all in all, added mm. the two together, it ticks a hell of a lot of boxes for both of yeah, us, yeah, David. Yeah. And I really, I really, really enjoyed this, and I, I think this is one of those ones where people should go out and read this just to see what can be done mm. in both fields, basically, because it's um, it's excellent in both. Now, I believe there was a TV series made of this. There is. Which... BBC made a TV series. I was trying to track it down um, uh, last night, but uh, and apparently it's available on Amazon Prime in the US, but it's not uh, available on th- through Amazon Prime here. Um, so it's a pain, but maybe eventually it will come onto a streaming service here or whatever. I'd certainly like to see it. It'd be interesting to see how they handle this whole business of the of the two cities, which are it's, in a way there's almost not a fantasy element to it. The, 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 it. They are sort of apart from the way people think you know, the, the, these cities are physical places juxtaposed next to each other. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting. Very interesting. I, yeah, I would quite like to see the um, the TV series. Um, David Morrissey, I think, is the actor yep, in that. So. so yeah, I'd, I'd like to catch up with that. But at the moment, it's not available on the streaming service I can find here. Um, but anyway, we could. I must read some more of Mieville's uh, books. I've only read this, and I've read his Juvenile, which is called Rail Sea, which is absolutely wacky premise. Premise, which is brilliant. Is, is it- is is a is a pretty wacky ride. Oh, it's, I, believe. It's terrific. I believe that in the TV series, for the bits that I saw, either I saw a trailer or saw bits of one particular episode, that when the detective comes up to say a row of shops, the only ones that he can see from his particular, uh, the only ones he can see clearly are from his particular cities city. And the shops next door, which belong to the other city, which his subconscious is able to work out, belongs to them. 
a fuzzy in his field of yeah, view. Yeah, it would make sense as well. And so yeah. I believe that what they've done is that they show it from not a straight camera perspective, but from his overall perspective. Mm. And they're looking at him. And when he when the when he looks at a row of uh, row of shops or a row of houses, the camera shows you uh, only the ones that he can see, and the rest of them are. Uh, out of focus so uh, it's going to be one of those ones it's intriguing I remember knowing that that TV series was around and now that you've spoken about this um, book again I really should I should go back and try and see if I can track it down somewhere yeah yeah that would be good yeah and uh, see see what's out there because it's uh, it is it's a vastly intriguing book and um, uh, intelligent Mm. well written and um, but he seems to have Sort of almost disappeared. I haven't heard him. I haven't seen much new from him. I haven't no. seen much from you know. He did those big monster sort of uh, futuristic urban science fiction novels called you know the um, uh, Perfido Street Station and the Scar, uh, and then he did uh, a few juveniles, and he just seems to have um, disappeared a bit recently. Yeah, I'll have to, to track him. But there, there are some books that, that look interesting that I, I'd like to go back and have a look at. Mm. Anyway, so look, he's certainly a, a, a very, very interesting um, uh, very interesting author. Uh, and this particular book is one of those ones that, you know, it's just an absolute cracker. Yeah, really, sure. Really good. Uh, before we finish with him entirely, I, I, I have a footnote about the particular edition of the book that, that I got, which was an mm. e-book version. And uh, this comes from Tor.com. And I thought that this, the, the e-book version was very badly formatted. And there's some really odd things about it. Um, the name of Bezel is spelt uh, B-E-S-Z, acute accent, E-L, B-E-Z-E-L, with an acute accent on the Z. Now, in, in the e-book, I only picked this up because I, I kept finding something strange in the e-book. In the e-book, the Z-acute character isn't rendered as an ordinary Unicode character which is perfectly legitimate Unicode character, mm. isn't represented as an ordinary Unicode character at all, but is, is little individual images of that character, <laughs> which, 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 which my Kobo reader didn't even show. Oh, just just shows as a box with well, you, through you, the you middle of it. You don't even see it. So I thought yeah. for a while that the name of the city was just B-E-S-E-L. Oh, um, no. So, but the, the, in one of the particular readers I was looking at, I could see something odd. Um, so I actually went in and looked at it in a, an ebook editor, and I could do that because Torb.com's books, ebooks, are free of uh, digital rights management. So you can actually mm. open them up and in an, in a, an editor and, and have a look. And sure enough, there's this little image tag in there with this strange little 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 image. Very strange. Anyway, so I, because I was able to get in with my ebook editor, I went in and I fixed all these formatting problems. I now have a nice clean version of the book. Uh, yeah, but you shouldn't have to. You shouldn't have to. No, no that's that's odd. Yeah, very that's odd. Very odd. Yeah. Anyway, there we are. So I just wanted to add that little little footnote. About, no, well, about that. Yeah. well it, the, the way that um, uh, the text is presented is well, has a has, has an impact on your uh, reading experience. Yeah. Uh, you know, the f- font sizes which 30, 40 years ago I wouldn't have even worried about, now I'm looking at and I'm going, oh, God, could you have this a bit bigger, please? Or or are they too big or there's too much white space or not enough? And um, Or if the, you know, basically it's not laid out properly, it can, uh, on, on an e-book, it can really throw you off. 
and make it very difficult for you to get into the book. So I'm glad that you were able to read it in an e-book version and still come out with the feeling that it was um, uh, an excellent piece of work uh, because you wouldn't want your enjoyment of this book in particular to be you know, sort of knocked about by the way that it's laid out and formatted. That would just be terrible. Yeah. But uh, it sounds like they didn't do a very good job of it. No, which is, which is strange with Toilet.com. Well, maybe, maybe it was just that, Kobo's version of that. I, I don't know, but it was something odd about it anyway. anyway. Okay. All right. So there you go. Okay. That was, that was well, it. So that's, I'm done. Oh, all right. Well, my last one, uh, I'm back reading um, Sue Grafton's series of the uh, Kinsey Mahoney uh mystery series uh this one is b is for burglar and i'll give you one guess as to what number in the series this one is David. <laughs> number two i imagine number two yeah so give that guy a cupid doll <laughs> yes it is number two now if you recall i uh last year or i think it was i uh, reviewed a is for alibi and really enjoyed it well b is for burglar is actually better Good. it really does seem to so be that she actually sort of um uh Got into gear around with this one. This cracker. I like this book a lot. Uh, this was the winner of the Anthony Award for Best Novel as well in that year and the Seamus Award for Best P.I. Hardcover in 1986. Yep. So this was published in, uh, originally published in 1985. So we have to go with the idea that this is a uh, P.I. novel set in the 80s. So no internet, no mobile phone. Everything's got to be done um, uh, on foot. You have to go look things up. You have to go to the um, you have to go to people's offices and ask them questions. Uh, you have to look things up in the phone book. Uh, yeah, everybody's uh, you have to ring people up on a dial phone. You know all this rotary phone. That's oh, fantastic stuff. Anyway, so um, in this particular one, Naomi is um, contacted by a woman, Beverly Danziger, who is attempting to contact her own sister. Uh, regarding a, a legal matter. Basically, there's been some money left to um, a whole lot of um, nieces and nephews by a, an uncle, and they can't finish, they can't resolve the estate um, until everybody signed their agreement to say that um, they're all happy with it. And the sister's gone missing and hasn't been returning the calls, and they want to basically find her so they can get this um, bit of paper signed. Now, apparently the sister, whose name is uh, Elaine Bolt, because she's been married and divorced, uh, spends half the year in Southern California in Santa Teresa. And interesting to note that Santa Teresa is a fictional town that was first introduced in um, Ross MacDonald's Lou Archer yeah. series of novels from 1940 to the 1970s. And, of course, Lou Archer is the name, was taken from the name of Sam Spade's partner, who is shot... Um, in the Maltese Falcon, so mm-hmm. there's a direct there's a direct line here from the Maltese Falcon down to these particular uh, series of novels. That's just by the by, but it's just one of those interesting little things. Anyway, so the sisters that they're looking for that's gone missing spends half the time in Southern California in Santa Teresa, where this particular book is set and where, where Mahoney's got her um, office, and the other half in Florida. Um, so she hasn't been seen since she uh, left for Boca. Boca Raton some weeks earlier. Now, first, this seems like a really simple matter. Um, and so Mahoney starts doing a bit of work on it. And for some reason, Danzinger decides that, oh, no, she doesn't like the way Mahoney's going about this. Surely this is an easy thing to do. You you know, shouldn't have to go down to Florida to be able to figure this out. And sacks her, basically. 
So, oh, okay. So, but anyway, Mahoney's a little bit intrigued about it, but she's not going to carry on and do anything. And until Danziger's husband turns up and starts talking to Mahoney and starts making wild allegations against his wife, saying that his wife's offered the fairies and makes a whole lot of stuff up and, you know, that, you know, there's nothing really here to uh, be looked into. So Mahoney starts thinking, oh, this is all a little weird. So she makes a quick trip down to Florida uh, to have a bit of a look to see what's going on. And uh, she finds out that somebody's camping in Bolt's Florida apartment because it's a condominium. Uh, you're not supposed to sublet. Uh, and so the, the managers of the condominium area have basically um, uh, told this woman to clear out. Uh, she's making an absolute mess of everything all over the place. Um, so Mahoney starts talking to one of the, the, the neighbours next door and gets as much information as she can, but can't really get much. She speaks to this woman who's in the apartment who said that um, uh, Bolt basically said that she could be stay there uh, for as long as she wanted, uh, rent-free or for a small amount of rent. Uh, but if she's going to get booted out, she's going to leave. Anyway, so Mahoney goes back to Santa Teresa, has a bit more of a look around and rings up this woman after uh, dancing a sector. And <clears throat> the woman that's in the not delayed boat but the, the neighbour decides that well this is one of the most fun bits of uh, 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 stuff adventure they've had in a long time so she basically decides well if this dancing a woman won't uh, uh, have you as uh, employ you as a PI to go looking into this I'll pay for you so she basically finds that she's now got another client and she goes to gets go and get stuck into it well things start getting a little bit twisted and complicated as it goes along. And um, as all these things should, they start off being very, very simple. These PI things, you know, something's gone missing. They need to find a particular person. It's normally a missing person that they try to track down. And it just gets to be one of those wonderful California private eye novels that just rolls beautifully slowly builds in complexity a little bit more comes in you they learn a little bit about one person and then learn a little bit more about something else and then the connections start coming together it starts getting all twisted and gnarly and just wonderful and it's short david it's short oh, good. It's, this is always it's, a good oh man it's like what is it in mind it's about 230 pages you can read it in two days and it flows beautifully you get that idea where you start off and it just kicks off and it just goes. And, you know, you read half of it and you think, gee, I wish I could get back to that and finish that off. You know, you get that sort of sense of I'm really enjoying reading this particular novel and I really want to get back into it again and finish it off and just power my way through it. And you do and you get to the end and it's a satisfactory ending. Ending It all rounds off really, really nicely. It doesn't necessarily go in the directions that you thought it was going to go, but you get hints and you can sort of figure it out. But you're reading so bloody fast that you get through to the end and you don't give yourself time to sit back and go, oh, now I wonder what's going on here. You just go with the roller coaster and just keep on flying. I really enjoy this. As I said, I think this might be my comfort reads and, you know, one or, one or two. Oh, well, you've, got, you've got most of the alphabet left in front of you, haven't you? Oh, well, she only made it to 25, unfortunately. She only oh, made almost, it to the Y. She, she died just before she got to Z, which is unfortunate. I think from what I've read and uh, from what I've looked into, these are probably the best Californian uh, private eye novels since the Ross, uh, Ross McDonald Lou Archer novels, which, I'm, which I mentioned earlier. Now, 
they may not necessarily be right up in that top level class because he was he's considered to be top of the pile. But this is a pretty much a worthy successor, and I think that if anybody reads these, you'll really you'll really enjoy them. And I'm looking forward to the rest of the series. My wife was a big fan, and so I talk about them. She remembers them, having read them 20 years ago. Oh, yeah, that one's about such and such. Yeah, go, very good. So she still remembers all this stuff, and so um, I've got all these paperbacks, all in a sort of uniform edition. Uh, they're all from uh, the English publishers. Uh, this one was... Uh, £4.50 from the United Kingdom, so probably $12, $13 when we bought it, uh, or $10. So not too bad. Yes, sir. Ex- excellent pieces of work. And I gave this one 4.2 out of 5, and um, I wouldn't be surprised if some of the others I give even a higher rating to. Enjoyable stuff. Good really stuff. enjoyable. That sounds like fun. Hmm. Yeah. All right. I think we're pretty well done with crime. I think we are pretty well done for this particular episode, uh, David. There's a fairly good range of um, uh, fairly, fairly good range of novels there. Yeah, that's There's, right. Um, from um, um, yeah, some recent stuff and some not so not so recent stuff, but uh, th- good things for people to look for look, look out for. Hopefully, excellent. Next episode, David. Hmm. We're gonna we're gonna go back to uh, looking at what we've been reading lately. Yep. Um, could be anything. Could be science fiction. Could be literary. Could be anything. Probably won't be much in the way of crime, but um, I think we will be able to uh, have a bit of a chat about the uh, short story nominees for the twenty twenty two Hugo Awards. There are six of them. I've now read them, and uh, I gather you're starting to uh, work your way through them. I will, yeah. Uh, and uh, one a day, and you should be able to get through them without any problem whatsoever. I should think so. They're all about the. Um, uh, as I said, you know, they're sort of up to about seven and a half thousand words. So um, uh, some interesting things there. There's a couple that I think um, you'll really quite enjoy and a couple that you'll go, mm, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so but, that, but that's to be expected when you've, got, um, when you've got a group of six. Yep. So that's what we'll be talking about next time. And we may have something else. We shall see how that goes. It depends on um, whether I can get my act together and record something, but we'll see what happens. Okay, so we'll be back in three weeks uh, with our next episode, talking about what we've been reading lately and the Hugo Short Story nominees for 2022. Sounds good. So see you then, David. See you too, Perry, and uh, thanks for this. See you later. All right, thanks. Bye. Bye.